the National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Here we are, Memorial Day weekend, the official kickoff to summer. Now, there's no doubt that many of us have already been to a unit of the national park system in 2022, but this weekend is the traditional kickoff to venturing out into the national park system. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler, and I'm fortunate to say that I actually visited Everglades National Park back in April and have plans to visit quite a few more parks in the coming months. In fact, uh, Grand Teton National Park is up next on my schedule. But if you don't know where to go yet this summer or what to do, I've invited Kim O'Connell, a contributing writer at The Traveler, and Lynn Riddick, our masterful podcaster, to help sort out the options. We'll be back in a minute with Lynn and Kim. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Petrero Group is here to help. They mix the depth of experience in the parks and land space with the breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com, P-O-T-R-E-R-O, group.com. Since 1986, National Park visitors have turned to the best-selling guidebook, Passport to Your National Parks, to collect fun ink stamps from each of their explorations. Just take your passport book to any National Park Visitor Center or park store and get your free ink stamp with the date and location of your visit. Personalize your passport even more by adding stickers, logging your favorite hiking trails, and mapping your next adventure. You can also show off your love for our national parks with passport-themed apparel and accessories. Best of all, 100% of proceeds from the Passport program support your national parks. Stamp your passport as you capture stories, preserve memories, and discover America's natural and historical treasures. Interior Federal Credit Union is pleased to offer members up to $500 in closing costs with a new home equity line of credit. Now is a great time to apply for a rate of 3.25% APR before they jump up. Take advantage of low rates and a great deal at interiorfcu.org. Membership is required, equal housing lender. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. All right, we're back with Kim and Lynn. Ladies, thanks for joining me. How are you guys doing this week? Hi, Kurt. I'm doing Hi, Kurt. great. <laughs> so, you know, we're going to talk about parks. We're going to talk about possible parks to go, things to do in the national parks. But before we, we get into the nitty gritty, there there are two books that I want to mention that, that I think can be very helpful to listeners out there and anyone planning to go to a national park unit. And I guess maybe it, it shows that I'm old school. I, I still like books. Um, I like something in my hands that I can dog ear the pages or, or uh, highlight with a, a red pen or something like that. And the first book is Your Guide to the National Parks, and it's by Michael Joseph Oswald. And it's the third edition of this book. And there are several unique aspects of this book. The first off, Mike publishes this himself. He does all the writing. He's got a friend who helps edit him. He takes most of the photos, and you know he doesn't have any corporate publishing house to tell him this is what you'll put in and this is how we're going to organize it and he just has this this wonderful flow that he um, goes out into the parks he visited quite a few 
if not all of the national parks, and um, has put together a nice guide. I mean, it's pretty heavy. It's not going to be something you stick in your backpack or your day pack. Um, it's more to, to throw on the, the car seat next to you as you're driving through the national park system. What's new in the third edition is uh, four new parks. You know, since the second edition, Indiana Dunes, Gateway Arch, White Sands, and New River Gorge have turned from either national lakeshores or national monuments or national rivers into full, fully-fledged national parks. And so you've got four new chapters on those. He's also got some beautiful maps of each park and he overlays those maps with um, some of his favorite places in a specific park to help you, you know, consider what you might want to do. Um, he does throw in a, a lot of subjective lists, best national parks, um, best sites in the parks, different recreational pursuits, um, paddling, hiking, scuba, bird watching, etc. And he's got um, a nice section on putting together two or three or four parks in, in one trip if you want to head out and you've got some some extra time. Um, you know, I've mentioned this in the past that, um, you know, once upon a time somebody asked me, like, you know, we want to go to Grand Teton and Yellowstone and Glacier in one week. You know, what would you suggest? And I don't think it's possible. And so if you're looking at um, the um, the trips that Michael has put together in his, his guidebook, um, keep in mind that most national parks, you should devote at least four or five days and then figure on a day of travel each way. So if you're planning to go to three national parks, I mean, I, I think I'd recommend three weeks or not three weeks, at least two weeks. What do you guys think? I think it depends where you're going, of course. I think for the big, big Western national parks you're talking about, where just getting from point A to point B to point Z takes a long time. That kind of time is definitely essential. But, you know, I'm here on the East Coast and there are smaller national parks here where you could get around a park or most of the significant portion of a park in less time. Um, you know, my favorite home national park, Shenandoah, is just 100 miles north to south. And so you can actually spend just a nice weekend in Shenandoah and kind of see a lot of the parks. So I think, yes, for those parks you were mentioning out west, I would definitely want to spend as much time as possible. But you know, the other, other combinations of days and trips can definitely be uh, created. Well, I would say time is always a crunch for everyone. And so I guess the question is, is it better to not have enough time to really thoroughly see a park or not go at all? So I would vote go if you have some time, because I think it's better to experience a little. But I think what everybody eventually sees is that they didn't have enough time to, to get around and really learn about the area, the geology, the history. And um, that's where the real beauty is. I would have to agree. And, and, and Shenandoah, Kim, you know, I think I, there's a picture somewhere in our family album of me and my brother sitting or standing next to the Shenandoah National Park sign. And that was probably back in the 60s of the last century. And, you know, since then, I've been there more and more. And I never have enough time in Shenandoah. I mean, if you like waterfalls and you want to hike down to the various waterfalls, you know, that's going to take more than a weekend. Um, you've got some nice history in the park with the CCC and, and whatnot. And just, you know, taking some nice leisurely hikes and bird watching and flower watching, flower photography. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't think there is a, a perfect answer to how much time you should spend in a national park. I mean, former U.S. Representative Jim Hansen from 
the great state of Utah once said that if you visited Great Basin National Park once, that was all you needed. Fortunately, he's no longer in Congress, and I think he was definitely wrong. I mean, you can go to Great Basin and you can spend your two or three days backpacking, or you can go down into Lehman Caves or, you know, go up hike, day hikes. Um, there's plenty plenty to do to, to fill up um, multiple visits to the national parks. Now, I will take um, some exception to, to some of Michael's um, lists, best of the parks. I mean, he says superlatives are, are Yellowstone, Glacier, and Yosemite um, as the top-tier parks that you should definitely include. And he works all the way down to Tier 5, which are good, but I'm not sure they meet the stereotypical idea of a national park. And under that listing, there are two parks, uh, Gateway Arch National Park in St. Louis and Hot Springs National Park in Arkansas, and I think a lot of our listeners would agree that they are not your stereotypical national parks and, and certainly um, don't merit top-tier status. But um, Acadia, I like, love Acadia. I know Kim likes Acadia. That, I think, would be a top-tier national park or Sequoia or Rocky Mountain and just goes on and on and on. I think it's kind of interesting to label parks, you know, in tiers that way anyway, as if there's a top and a bottom. I would rather think about the national park system as an ecosystem of places that appeal to a wide range of people. So one person's top tier list might differ greatly and for very good reasons than another. So I don't doubt that this list is feels true and correct to this writer, but you know, I think others would have different lists and for very good reasons. So they have different reasons for going to national parks and, and getting things out of them. So I think the Gateway Arch is pretty amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. And you have to make the distinction between a national park where you go for the scenery and the hiking and the experience um, of being fully immersed in nature uh, versus a national historical park where you go and learn about specific things that happened um, and why they are uh, important to our history. And I recently have been to a lot of national historical parks, including uh, the Lyndon Baines Johnson National Historical Park here north of where I live in San Antonio. And I was blown away. There was so many interesting things there. It was such a huge place. And um, I just can't wait to go back. I, I, I won't disagree with either one of you, although, you know, I kind of like that Michael's gone out there on a, on a limb, so to speak, and, and come up with his subjective list. Because, you know, when you're traveling to a national park, if you're with friends or family, I mean, it, it provides fodder for some discussion, debate. And uh, um, we can all agree what is or we can all disagree. That's that's the beauty of it. Um, and it's a fun discussion. I mean, uh, only through informed dialogue can you come to appreciate another's point of view. Another another book that uh, showed up recently at Traveler Headquarters is um, The National Parks Journal by Stephanie Payne. And um, the subtitle to this book is Plan and Record Your Trips to the U.S. National Parks. And again, you got to hold it in your hands. I, I wonder if there's an app because it would make for a wonderful app. Because it's uh, just, you know, like uh, a personal journal. But there are some great sections in here in terms of, you know, how to pack for your trip. And she's got, you know, checklists, clothing, shoes, outdoor gear, food and drink, miscellaneous. You know, do you have your multi-purpose tool and your roll of duct tape? You know, what about your hatchet? Now, oh, I don't know how many parks you need to bring a hatchet to. In fact, I don't 
think you need to hatch it in any national park. But bear spray, binoculars, you know, that's good to know. And then there's um, a section on um, actually planning once you get to a trip. And there are, there are great sections here on, you know, resources, you know, write down the, the phone numbers of the the visitor center or where you get your wilderness permit if you're going into the backcountry or if you're going out there with outfitters. Items to pick up on your park visit, you know, do you, do you need a park pass? Do you want to get pins or patches? You know, for me, hiking stick medallions. I've got a great collection of those, and I definitely want to pick up one when I go to a new park. Did you leave your, your trip plan in, with an emergency contact back home? I mean, some really nice stuff that, you know, we all think of later. And, and speaking of thinking of later, um, she's got sections where you record your experiences and memories from your national park trip. And um, one of those sections, what did you wish you knew before you went? That's a good one. What did you wish you would have brought with you? You know, so when you get into the that national park setting, you say, dang, I, I left this home or I left that home. You can make a note of it right then and there. So for your next park trip, you'll you'll have that to look back on and say, oh, yeah, I better make sure that's packed. Binoculars high on the list. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and then uh, she's got a section on, you know, all the different designations of units in the national park system, which I forget how many different designations there are, but there's there's way more than, than people come to expect. National lakes, national seashores, national parks, national historic sites, national historical parks, and on and on and on. And um, I, I hope there's a section in there on the National Park Service Organic Act, because no matter what the designation is, all these units are supposed to be managed the same. Um, preservation of the resource for future generations' enjoyment. So um, we don't need to add this if if you don't have any suggestions, but do you guys have any books or suggestions that um, tell people plan? To tell people how to plan for the parks or just to... What you rely on when you're preparing for a park visit. Well, I rely on the National Parks Traveler. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't resist that setup, Kurt. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to work it in there somehow. You know, honestly, I often go back to nps.gov. I mean, I I really heavily rely on the Park Service website and all the park sites to get a grounding. I like books like you too, but I also always check out um, the website before I go to a national park. Yeah, unfortunately, I, I find nps.gov to be a mess, quite frankly. I mean, there are the haves and the have-nots of the national park system, and the haves like the Yellowstones and the Grand Canyons and Rocky Mountain have the resources to put together really powerful, information-laden websites. And then there are the majority of the national park sites do not have those resources, and their websites are pretty poor if you're trying to plan something. Yeah, that's true. It's unfortunate. It's unfortunate. All right, we're going to take a short break now, and we'll be back in a minute with Lynn and Kim to discuss our plans for this summer in the national parks and try and point out some areas that you might consider. We are park stewards to ensure our most wild and historic places remain for generations to come, to safeguard our preferred arena for adventure, reflection, and inspiration. We donate 4% of our proceeds, that's revenues, not profits, to support America's most wild and historic places. We are Wild Tribute, 
apparel for the parks. Find out more at wildtribute.com. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. The Everglades Foundation, the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at evergladesfoundation.org. All right, we're back talking about the summer in the national park system and where you are going or where you might want to go. And um, Kim, you've got a pretty full slate this summer. Yeah, I do. I'm, I'm really excited. Um, heading in kind of opposite directions this summer. In early July, I'm heading up to Acadia National Park, in part because I'm going to be teaching a nature writing course up there for one week. So that's really exciting because I've been to, been to Acadia several times and it's such an inspiring place and it's a great place for writers. So we might want to bring that journal along or encourage students to pick up that their journal, you know, that journal when they're hiking and want to scribble down some notes. But this might be my sixth or seventh trip to Acadia. So in addition to kind of hitting all the high points, I really want to see if I can investigate trails or places that I haven't seen before up there. I also want to take stock of how crowded it feels because as we've reported on many times in the Traveler, Acadia is just becoming a really, really crowded national park on, on the East Coast. And I, they've instituted some things to help deal with the crowds in Acadia. And I want to just see for myself how that how that's going. I know there's a reservation system to get to the top of Cadillac Mountain now and other things like that. But um, I'm also looking forward to just eating some great New England seafood and going hiking and uh, stargazing in this dark sky place in Acadia. And then my family and I are heading to Alaska at the end of July. I've never been to Alaska and I'm super excited about that. And we'll be heading to Denali and Kenai Fjords National Parks um, in Alaska. And then finally, in towards the very end of the summer, we're just going to head head down to Cape Hatteras National Seashore on the Outer Banks, which we've been going to. Well, I have been going to since the 1970s. And I know the traveler reported on um, the house that basically was washed away on Hatteras not too long ago. And House is. I, and I will be interested to see with my own eyes what's what's happening with sort of the ever shifting sands at Hatteras. So those are my plans. How about you all? You know, let, let's start just for a minute. Um, Lynn, hold off. Um, Kim, Cape Hatteras, um, two houses collapsed on May 10th, uh, pulled down by the Atlantic and one back February 9th. That's three houses so far. And um, they're causing a real problem with the seashore experience. The the park has put out a warning to folks that if you're walking on the beach um, near Rodanthe, um, make sure you've got shoes on because there's all kinds of debris, including 
boards with nails on them. And um, boy, I'd, I'd hate to be the park manager there because it sounds like they're really stymied about what what they can do, you know, with more houses lined up to fall in. Yeah, it's really tough, especially in that part of Hatteras. That's the northern end of Hatteras Island. As probably most readers know, the Outer Banks are very long, linear barrier islands. You know, there isn't that much square footage from what from the ocean to the sound. And they, they're just constantly shifting. And especially the north northern part of Hatteras has it's been a constant battle for the seashore and for residents and builders who want to build vacation homes to figure out how do we build here um, and not let these houses fall in the ocean. So it's, it's, it's tough. They're, they've shifted the roads. They've built up the dunes. They've tried a lot of things to help stave off the that is sort of the natural cycle of movement that barrier islands do. That's that's what their natural thing is to do. So it, it is a struggle there. Um, I will say though, you know, the Cape Hatteras is a long national seashore because of because of the nature of the Outer Banks. So you know, there are plenty of other areas to get out on the sand and get in the water and for for um, visitors to figure out places to go enjoy the surf and enjoy the lighthouses down there. So, you know, while it's difficult for the folks that are right in Rodanthe, which is kind of like the epicenter of this erosion that's happening, there are plenty of other places that I think visitors can go to get on the beach. So hopefully they can just be careful and have fun this summer and be safe. I think it's worth noting too, Kurt, you know, per your article, hundreds of volunteers are coming out to the seashore to clean up all these construction materials and, and debris from these houses that have been washed away. And that makes you feel a little bit better, not great, but um, I think folks want to do whatever they can when they see something like this happening to protect what, what belongs to all of us. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's a tough, tough situation because a lot of these homes when they were built um, might've been a hundred or 200 feet from the Atlantic ocean. And over time, um, Atlantic keeps chewing away, and it's a problem not only for the National Park Service, but I would think for for Dare County, North Carolina officials on on what to do. I mean, where do you issue a building permit for knowing that sometime down the road, um, the Atlantic's going to get you? And um, we just had a story on The Traveler about sea level rise in the latest reports projecting, I think, by 2050, how much higher it's going to come up on uh, not just Cape Hatteras, but, you know, Cape Lookout, Cape Cod, Cape Canaveral, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, do we have to get more aggressive with zoning areas for, for construction? I don't know. It's a, it's a tough one because, uh, you know, if you own that land, you want to be able to use it for the purpose you want. I don't know. So it, it shows you how forward thinking and what a success story moving in the Cape Hatteras Lighthouse back in 1999 was. Like, you know, that's one of the biggest national park success stories we have. That, that park managers and other officials saw the writing on the wall in terms of this ever moving island and took such care in moving that huge lighthouse and the lighthouse is protected. And now, you know, all these other smaller buildings are falling into the ocean like the lighthouse would have done if they hadn't taken that enormous step, you know, how many years ago? Yeah, but the big question is, did they move it far enough? Right, <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> Hey, I'd like to go back to uh, the comment Kim made about crowds at Acadia and what she might expect when she gets there. And I just had a conversation with a good friend who uh, was just in Sequoia, uh, Kings Canyon and Yosemite this week, came home. And she reported that Yosemite was not crowded, 
she felt maybe a little crowded on some of the shuttles going to the trailheads um, and felt a little pressed on the Vernal Fall hike. So she was delighted. That said, she attributes, and you know, this is anecdotal, of course, but she attributes maybe lighter crowds to what they saw there, $6.59 to $7 a gallon for unleaded gasoline in, in the mm. parts of California where they were traveling through. So that might play into um, what we see in the parks this summer crowds. Um, I can attest that I'm going back to Big Bend National Park in just a couple of weeks. And uh, some friends are going with us. And I thought, well, it might be better for me to rent a uh, SUV than to take my sedan. But then I thought, in addition to you know the, the high price of renting an SUV, SUVs are only getting 15 to 20 miles to the gallon. And my sedan um, gets 45 to 50 miles a gallon. So we're going to go in my car. And I think the high price of gas was what is, uh, is what is driving me to, to make that decision. No, that's a, that's a very good point. Um, yeah. California gas prices are out of this world. Um, what was interesting, you know, I was just back in Virginia and, and the, the regular gas there was about the same as it is here in Utah, which surprised me. Um, cause, uh, Usually Utah is a little bit higher than elsewhere, but um, no. To your point, Lynn, I've got a, a road trip coming up at the end of June where I'm I'm driving back to Iowa um, to a family wedding, and I, I'm going to visit some parks along the way. And I'm kind of curious about what gas prices will be like as well. And um, you know, on top of gas prices, I know at Yosemite they've got a lot of construction projects planned this summer, and so they are going to have a uh, reservation system of sorts, I believe, um, after Memorial Day weekend um, kicking in, or maybe it's kicking in for for this weekend and going forward because of the construction. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting, and it's going to be interesting to see if the concessionaires are able to get um, enough workers. I mean, that's that's been a big problem, too, and uh, how is that going to impact national park visits? Right, especially workers that have a long commute in and out of the park. And even seasonal Park Service employees who can't get housing inside a national park or in a gateway town. What are you doing down Big Bend? Is that you turned into your favorite go-to place, Lynn? I think so. I mean, if anybody listened to my podcast earlier this year, you learned that I went to Big Bend for the first time 30 years ago and never got a chance to go back except for this past December. And while there, I thought, you know what? This is awesome. It's been a really fun road trip. And I'm going to do this every year. So uh, a few of us are going to go and it'll be interesting to see because when I went 30 years ago, it was July and I don't really recall being hot, but that was, that's been a long time ago. So it'll be interesting to see if uh, the heat is just so unbearable that you don't want to get out there and hike. I doubt it for me because I can tolerate a lot of heat, but um I'm just looking forward to another experience and uh, uh, another few nights of looking at the dark skies and the stars and uh, you know, doing some more trail hiking and bird watching and just enjoying um, the beauty that is Big Bend National Park. That sounds like a great trip. And uh, if you get a chance, um, track down the superintendent, Bob Kramenacker. Um, they're trying to come up with a plan for replacing the, the Chisos Lodge. Um, I know I know that's a big uh project on his list and I'll be kind of curious to see um, how they're how they're planning for that and, and what type of timetable um, they're, they're working on because I know a lot of people 
not everybody likes to camp out, pitch a tent or pull an RV. And uh, lodges in national parks are, are just part of the experience. I mean, if you've ever stayed at the Old Faithful Inn or um, Lake McDonald Lodge, you know, or, you know, Big Mountain Lodge. Is it Big Mountain or Big Mountains? Kim and Shenandoah. I, Big Meadows. Big Meadows, Big Meadows. Always, yeah. <laughs> I always get that wrong. But it, it's such a such a unique part of park history to stay in some of those places and be curious to see how they approach the, the Chisos Lodge and, and designs and whatnot. You know, this summer they're um, in Grand Teton National Park at the, the Jackson Lake Lodge, which was Gilbert Stanley Underwood's last big lodge project for the National Park Service. And um, Gilbert Stanley Underwood, of course, designed the Iwani in Yosemite. He did the um, lodge in Bryce Canyon, I believe, and in Zion. And, and he, he represented the, the architecture phase of the National Park building boom. And I thought that Jackson Lake Lodge was just an atrocious design that he came up with. Um, it's very... <sighs> squat sits on the landscape um, very square he used a lot of concrete in in what they call the shadow shadow wood approach in which they used forms that had wood so when they poured the concrete in there and it, it solidified the structure of the trees the tree trunks and whatnot came out in the the concrete and so it almost looked like you know they used wood because they stained it that dark brown color and whatnot. And anyway, this summer they are um, redoing the the roof, I believe, on the Jackson Lake Lodge and, and um, restoring rehabilitation work to, to some of that concrete on the outer structure. But um, anyway, yeah, there's a whole genre of national park architecture that you can debate back and forth. Well, going back to parks that you might be able to hit several at one trip, I would say high on my list, don't think it's going to happen this summer, but is a trip to uh, Wind Cave National Park in South Dakota, and then go up to Mount Rushmore, and then Devil's Tower, and then the Teddy Roosevelt National Historical Park. I think that would be just a great trip, probably a lot cooler uh, in the summer, but you definitely have to know to avoid August 7th through 16th. That's when the Sturgis Motorcycle Festival goes there. They do a ride to Devil's Tower and there's, you know, hundreds, well, thousands of motorcycles. So that's just not the time of year you want to go, but uh, that's high on my list. I'd, I'd love to see that, uh, those parks. You know, that that is a great trip. I'll make one, one suggestion, Lynn. Um, Theodore Roosevelt's a nice park, but it's kind of out of the way. If you fly into... Um, Rapid City. I mean, you've got, um, as you mentioned, Wind Cave National Park right there. You've got Jewel Cave National Monument, which is a fabulous place if you like going underground. Um, Devil's Tower is nearby. Uh, Mount Rushmore is nearby. And Badlands National Park is nearby. And and those, um, what's that, one, two, three, four, five parks, just a wonderful road trip. And and you're not dealing with a lot of mileage going back and forth or, or circumnavigating those parks and um, they all have wonderful flavors to them and june is a good time it's not too hot you know um if i could go anywhere and have the time to do it i think top of my list to escape the heat this summer which we're bound to have record temps is isle royale national park and to me that's really intriguing and i actually was flying um back from europe 
this last week and flew over Lake Superior and I could see it from 30,000 feet. So that even makes it more, you know, uh, more intriguing, but it's a really interesting place. It's very close to the Canadian border. You can only get in and out of there um, on a seaplane or a ferry or a private boat. It's closed, you know, during the winter months because the the weather is um, very, uh, very harsh. And, you know, I, I had done an interview with Dave Conlon from the Submerged Resources Center of the National Park Service. And he talked about how it's a fantastic place to dive because the water is so cold, it's so clear, and there's 10 major shipwrecks there all waiting to be explored. It's not a very crowded uh, national park, but there's a lot of history. There's lighthouses, there's old copper mining that happened there. Just fantastic history. And it sounds like a beautiful place. And so that would be top of my list if I could just do anything this summer and uh, and had some time to to really explore that. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's my list too. Yeah, I think it's on all of our lists, and um, you, you can't get there from here. But um, it, it takes some effort. Um, but it does sound like a great, great place to go. And because it takes so much effort, I think um, a week to ten days at least. We're talking about summer national park vacations with uh, Kim O'Connell and Lynn Riddick, and we're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smoky's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That is why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people, inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. Okay, ladies, um, I'm going to go a little bit off the beaten path this summer. I mean, I, I did say I was going to go to Grand Teton. Um, that's a, a personal trip, strictly personal, no work at all. Um, my wife and I are going to go up there and do some kayaking on Jackson Lake. But um, later this summer, um, I'm hoping to get out to Agate Fossil Beds National Monument in western Nebraska. Um, I'm also going to visit uh, Scott's Bluff National Monument and um, Homestead National Monument of America, and Tallgrass Prairie National Preserve, and um, Fort Larned National Historic Site. And starting with that last one, you know, after the Civil War, the military moved west to battle the Indians and Native Americans and displace them. And they, they set up, you know, an incredible network of forts. And as I understand it, um, Fort Larned is the most historically complete Fort remaining from that period of American history. Um, I, I love Fort Laramie National Historic Site in Wyoming, but there's very little of it that um, remains 
from its heyday, and supposedly Fort Larned um, is pretty much intact, and so I'm really looking forward to that. Tallgrass Prairie, of course. Um, as the country expanded westward, we, we rolled over the prairies. We got rid of the Tallgrass Prairie, the Shortgrass Prairie, um, all the ecosystems that went with them. And, you know, Tallgrass Prairie is one of those park sites that preserves part of some of those ecosystems. And I think that's going to be interesting. And so they've got the not only the Tallgrass Prairie, but they've got bison there. And I believe uh, it's a cooperative agreement with the Nature Conservancy. Um, and so they have a bison herd there. And um, that'll be interesting to see them in the natural element, so to speak. Homestead National Monument of America. I mean, the, the homestead area era of uh, the United States was phenomenal. And to be able to you know, learn more of that history outside of a history book, I'm really looking forward to that. But it's just, you know, we talk about overcrowding in the national parks and uh, to be able to go to some park sites that you know, some people might not have thought of. I mean, we don't want to draw the crowds to them necessarily, but... Um, they are um, jewels in the national park system and uh, definitely worth a visit. Yeah, I've, I've driven across uh, Nebraska and Kansas on big park road trips a couple times with my family. And I think if you only really know the West Coast or the East Coast, or if you're sort of a big mountains person, you can kind of not understand or realize how much beauty and history there is on the Great Plains. I remember we were driving through a prairie landscape, I think probably in Nebraska, and we just like stopped to stretch our legs on the side of the road. And what hit me, surrounded by grass, as far as I could see in every direction, was how wonderful it smelled. Like there was this like sensory overload of this sweet prairie grass that was really uh, memorable. There's a lot of history and beauty there, you know, in Nebraska and Kansas, and they sound really like interesting parks. I've been to a couple of the ones you mentioned, but not Fort Larned or Homestead. So um, I went to see the the Brown versus Board of Education site in Kansas when I was there, another really significant historic site in Kansas worth seeing. Well, other than my Big Bend trip, I'm very envious of you guys' uh, travel schedule this summer. So uh, hopefully the next time we talk, I'll have something else on the calendar. All right. All right. Well, I'm sure you'll come home from Big Ben with some interesting stories. You always manage to find them. You know, one thing I would suggest um, to everybody who's going out into the national park system this, this summer and through the fall is one way to get a unique park experience is to go out after dark, to, to go against the tide, so to speak, and to really use all your senses. Like Kim was just talking about the the smell of the prairie as she went through it. And, you know, we were down in Everglades back in April. And one thing we didn't do, Kim, that I wish we did do was go the Anhinga Trail after dark. And, and apparently, you know, you can just hike out there and listen to the alligators in, in Taylor Slough there. You know, if you go to Yellowstone National Park, go out after dark and listen to Old Faithful erupt, or if it's a, a full moon night, watch Old Faithful erupt, or if it's a, a moonless night, the, the stars over Old Faithful or whatnot. And there's just so many, so many experiences. People seem to, the majority of people seem to function between breakfast and dinner time. And, and you know, if you go out after those hours or before those hours, there's so much more to experience, I think. Yeah, that's interesting to note because I've noticed in the parks, on my park trips, staying at the lodges, that 
it, it's like a ghost town after dinner time. You know, if you're out and about at nine or 10 o'clock, there's just nobody around. Um, and I always thought that was uh, very interesting. Of course, I usually do park trips on the off season. Uh, so that might explain it because you have older guests who don't have children that tend to go to parks late in the season, mid-September to late September. But I have noticed that, that they just seem very uh, isolated and, and secluded and not many people out and about. I kind of like that, but I'm out and about trying to, you know, see the dark skies and, and enjoy the night. And uh, hopefully this summer you can get a glimpse of the Milky Way if you're in a dark sky park and a lot of stars and uh, uh, that makes it exciting. Yeah, one thing I would recommend too is that a lot of park ranger talks are at sunset or after dark. And for people who maybe aren't as comfortable, like sort of just walking on a trail in the dark, um, going to a park ranger program is an interesting way to be in a park in the dark, but kind of with people, with a park ranger there, learning something. And so whenever I've been in a national park with my kids, I always try to see whether there's some, you know, after hours or after dark park ranger talk. And often they are about the night sky, um, but they they can, I've gone to park ranger talks about nocturnal animals, one in which I remember they were describing the sounds of the insects we could hear, the kind of, you know, twilight insects, and the ranger was telling us exactly what what bugs like we were hearing and what birds we were hearing at dusk. And it just so adds to the park experience. Um, and I think, you know, we're so used to the idea of darkness being unsafe. And it can, of course can often be, especially kind of maybe in, in the city or a busy area, but I think uh, parks can give you opportunities to sort of get used to the idea of being safe in the dark and relying on your eyes because your eyes adjust in the dark. If they're if you're in the dark long enough, your eyes adjust. You can see a lot by moonlight. You can see a lot by starlight, actually. And and to that end, actually, just about a month ago, I took my Girl Scout troop on a night hike just here in Arlington, Virginia. And of course, Arlington, Virginia is a close in suburb of DC. So it never gets that dark, even at 10 o'clock of night at night. But we were trying to help the Girl Scouts understand like you can be outside in numbers and be safe and have this whole other experience that's that's interesting to you. No, absolutely. I think uh, think outside the box is the, the advice I would um, part with. Um, anyway, Kim, Lynn, thanks so much for joining uh, me today to discuss about uh, summer in the national parks and uh, looking forward to, to see um, how your experiences go. Thanks, thanks Kurt. Kurt. It's always great to talk to you. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Those books I mentioned at the top of the show to help with planning your park adventures are Your Guide to the National Parks, 3rd Edition, and the National Parks Journal, Plan and Record Your Trip to the U.S. National Parks. Coming up on June 6th is our next webinar with Everglades National Park Ranger Yvette Cano on sluice logging and other educational activities in the park. We'll also be joined by Frank Dean, the president and CEO of the Yosemite Conservancy. Along with sluice logging, we'll be discussing funding challenges across the national park system. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Rappencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, 
These musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit nationalparkstraveler.org.